Well, I invite you to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and if you've brought your Bible, please open it to that chapter. If you don't have a Bible, these guys are going to make their way to the back and get their attention. They'll get you a Bible, and it's marked for you at Matthew 16. Keep that Bible, bring it back with you next week and every Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Well, thanks for showing this, I think I, can, I think I can say, this is the smallest crowd we have ever had in a decade or more. And we know the reason. In fact, I knew that we were going to have a very small crowd. Didn't know how small because we have so many people who are ill. And then you add to that a blast of snow and it results in a smaller crowd. So thanks to those of you who are able to persevere. And those of you who are not ill and able to be with us. But I expect then that we have a number of you joining us by live stream, and I hope that's the case. And it may be that some of you, because of the snow, were not able to make it to your own church. You decided to tune into another, and you're with us. So please know that we're glad to have you. And also that we normally do have more folks, because I think that thing pans down around over here, and you'll see about four people. So I just want to assure you we have at least ten that come every Sunday to our, to our church. We do look forward to having our folks back. And I anticipated that this would be the case because I kept hearing so many people who were ill and also the weather report, uh, so much so that I've changed what I was planning to do today and probably the next couple of weeks, which is at the beginning of each year, we have what I call the State of the Church Address. And I talk about uh, some of the things that have happened in the past year that we've been able to accomplish, and then as a church looking forward to some things coming up in the next year. I always look forward to that because it kind of sets the tone and gives us our direction for the, the coming year. So we're going to do that in the next few weeks, but exactly when the timing of starting that oh, is no. will depend on how folks are getting over this. We want as many people here it all as possible. It's, it's working so now. instead, Larry we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16 today. It's working. We engaged this first Lord's Day of 2022 Having to deal with the continuing surge of COVID-19 and the disruption that it continues to cause. And I say we're dealing with it today because, as I've said, so many of our people are indeed sick. And I know some with COVID, perhaps others with flu or other things. But the unknown means that even those not sick but have been exposed are quarantining. And so we begin this year with many who are not here but hopefully, as I said, able to watch on, on live stream. I want to thank our brother Paul for handling the music. We have all of our other musicians unable to make it today uh, because of those reasons. And so thank you, Paul, for doing that and for all who have just kind of stepped in so that we can uh, have some semblance of our worship time together. It can be disillusioning uh, for me and I am sure for you as well.
class, uh, whether or not we have to do hybrid. My heart goes out to our, our frontline workers, and in particular those in the, the medical field. To our workers in general, everybody who's employed has had a similar kind of thing, wondering when they're going to go back to in-person, if they're going back in-person. Is it going to be two days at home and three days uh, virtual, and so on? All of us who have had relationships, who have relationships of any type, have been affected by this. Uh, dad and mom, I assume, are watching now. Hey, dad and mom. My in-laws, Kim's mom and dad, and one of the things I look forward to every week is going and doing a little shopping for them on my day off on Monday and then taking those groceries to them and spending a bit of time with them. And this past Monday, because of things going around, uh, we decided in an abundance of caution that was the better part of wisdom that I just dropped those off on the porch. And Dad came out to the door and he said, I don't like it that you can't come in. And I agree, Dad, I, I don't like it either. So it's affected everybody, and now going on a very long time, almost two years, and it's also affected us ecclesiastically and, and missionally. I was, as I said, to start our State of the Church address today, but I'm putting that off perhaps until we have most everyone back, which I hope is going to be soon. So in the meantime, we take a break today from the book of Acts, and we take that break to be reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 16 that Pastor Rich read earlier. Verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's pray now and ask God to help us as we're reminded that the Lord Jesus is going to build his church, come what may. Father, we thank you. We thank you in all things, and your word tells us to thank you for all things. And so we thank you for everything that comes from your hand, even the things that are indeed disruptive, even the things that try our patience, even the things that are difficult. And these last two years have had many of those. But Lord, we thank you because we know that you use everything. You use everything for the advance of your purposes in your world and that your people, we who belong to Christ, are at the center of what it is you are doing in your world. You deign to allow us to be used by you, in fact, to move those purposes forward in the midst of whatever it is you allow. And so, Lord, we need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that. And so I ask you to help us today as we look at the words of the Lord Jesus, who told us what he was going to do, a promise, and because he is Almighty God, it's a promise that absolutely will be fulfilled. We thank you for our time, together now, either via live stream or in person, to be reminded of this precious truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In your outline that you should have received on the way in, I say this, that the church is invincible, and it's invincible because, first of all, of what she believes. The church is invincible because of what she believes. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now Caesarea Philippi was built by one of the sons of Herod the Great, Philip. Herod had himself overseen many building projects, fortresses and palaces and aqueducts and stadiums, amphitheaters, entire urban areas, 
and the renovation of the temple in Jerusalem, which was known as Herod's Temple. One of his, that is Herod's projects, was the port city of Caesarea. When Herod died just a year after Jesus was born, his territory in Palestine was divided among his sons, one of those sons being Philip, who also built and dedicated a different city to the emperor, and so named it Caesarea, Caesarea, but added his own name to distinguish it from the one his father had built, Caesarea Philippi. It was located about 25 miles from Galilee, where much of Jesus' ministry took place. Although Jesus had some wider ministry in Caesarea Philippi, he seems to have come there, in this instance now, with the apostles to focus on teaching them specifically. And it was in that location that Jesus asked them, in verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? I say in your outline, the church is invincible because of what she believes, first of all, regarding who Jesus is. In verse 13, when Jesus asks, who do people say the Son of Man is, the people he's referring to are those among whom he had primarily been ministering, his own people, the Jews. Jesus was not looking to be popular. In fact, he had already drawn the ire of the Jewish religious leaders who blasphemously claimed he was performing his miracles by the power of Satan back in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus did not look to shape his ministry in order to be in good standing with everyone. And so he was using the apostles, then some people would think, as a kind of focus group uh, to poll popular opinion. Hey, how am I doing among the masses? How are my poll ratings? Jesus was doing actually none of that. Instead, he was trying to draw out what they, the apostles, thought of him. And then in turn, once they have that clear, now they can go and make clear who Jesus is to others. And so he wanted to draw out what they thought of him, and as he did so, often he began pulling that out with a question. Who do the people say the Son of Man is. Now when he says son of man, that was Jesus' most common designation for himself. He used it some 80 times. It's used of him some 80 times in the New Testament. And it was clearly recognized by the Jews as a title of the Messiah, going back to Daniel chapter 7 in the first part of your Bible. But because it emphasized his humanness, son of man, many Jews preferred not to use it. As one commentator said, Though no doubt it was one reason that Jesus did prefer to use it, to focus on his humanity and his humbling of himself and his submission in the, his first coming to his sacrificial substitutionary work of atonement, about which he will speak in just a few verses. In verse 14, they replied this way, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So opinion on Jesus' identity was divided. Some thought he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. In fact, another son of Herod, I've already mentioned Philip as one of Herod the Great's sons, but another one named Antipas, Philip's brother, said that very thing about Jesus, that he is John the Baptist having come back from the dead. He said that just two chapters earlier in Matthew 14. Herod, Antipas, the brother of Philip, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to the attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. 
This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Those who thought that Jesus was, the Messiah, was Elijah saw him as a forerunner of a Messiah who was still to come. So he is not the Messiah, but he's the forerunner of the Messiah yet to come. The connection with Jeremiah was probably due to the similarities between both Jesus and Jeremiah's authoritative message, but authoritative message really of doom for Israel due to their spiritual blindness. And then verse 14 says, or one of the other prophets. That re refers to the fact that some expected a long series of prophets to be forerunners of the Messiah who was promised in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. But at this point, Matthew chapter 16, no group was openly and thoughtfully confessing Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus wanted to ensure that his first followers had no ambiguity or misunderstanding about who he is. I mean, it's one thing for the hoi polloi to be all over the map regarding Christ and Christianity, but it's quite another for his followers who claim to know him to be so. So verse 15. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And the you, in Greek, you can put words at the beginning of the sentence in order to emphasize their importance. And that is at the front. It's emphasized. You. Who do you guys say that I am? You see, friends, what's most important is never what the world believes and does, but always what Christ's people believe and do. We easily forget the special role that God has given to his people in his world. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And Jesus had said those things previously, you remember, in this very book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. What you say and do is more important than what anyone else says or does as a child of God. Jesus is saying, you represent me. You are my ambassadors. Therefore, let's be certain that you are clear on who I am and that you represent me accurately. So the church is invincible. It will be built. The gates of Hades will not overcome it, Jesus says. Because of what she believes, and I say in your outline, because of what God's word says. Verse 15, Jesus asks, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now I remind you that Messiah is the anointed one. This is the promised one. Promises about whom were made many times in the Old Testament. Predictions about where he would be born and the circumstances and what he would do and all of that. Messiah, the anointed one. The New Testament equivalent of that in Greek is Christ. And so Messiah, the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the promised one, the one who was predicted. You are the son of the living God. Peter is saying you've come as son of man. Jesus said, who do people say that the son of man is? But you are more than that. You are the son of God. Jesus is fully human, and he is fully divine. He is the God-man in one unique person. So Peter has gotten it right. 
but he did not arrive at that profound truth all by himself. If not for the interpretation of Jesus' person and work provided by God, then Peter would be floundering on who Jesus is like everyone else was. And Jesus says so in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now, Peter's given name is Simon, but Jesus will refer to him as Peter in just a bit. But notice, he not only calls him by his given name, Simon, but also by his lineage. You are Simon, son of Jonah, emphasizing you're a mere human, you're the product of, of mere humans, and so you, Simon, nor anyone else can know spiritual truth apart from God making it known, God revealing it. To know the mind and plan of God requires that he reveal it. If the Christian worldview is true, and it is, then everything begins with God. And if it begins with God, then we are derivative, we are derived, we are created, we are not self-existing as he is. And therefore, we require him to clue us in, to communicate us, to reveal who he is, who we are, and what we are to believe and do. I call that the revelational imperative. Revelation, not the book of Revelation, but just the idea of Revelation, making known, is imperative. It's absolutely necessary, required, that God make himself known if he is to be known. But thanks be to God, he has done so both in creation and in his word. And so we do not have to grope in darkness, but rather we walk in the light that's provided by God's word. And so the psalmist says famously, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. The psalmist said elsewhere, in your light, we see light. In what you reveal to us, in what you make known to us, now we can see life as it's intended to be, ourselves as we are intended to be, you as you really are. But why wasn't all that had been provided in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, provided over centuries regarding the identity of the Messiah to come, why was that not sufficient to see Jesus as the anointed one? Because here they are on the backside of all of that. They have all of that, and yet they don't immediately identify Jesus as this one. One preacher explained it well, I think, saying, on first meeting Jesus, Andrew had excitedly proclaimed him as the Messiah. Nathanael had called him the Son of God, the King of Israel. That's in John chapter 1. The disciples knew that John the Baptist had borne witness that Jesus is, quote, the Son of God. Again, John chapter 1. And the longer they stayed with him, the more evidence they had of his divine nature, his power, and authority. Like their fellow Jews, however... They had been taught to expect a conquering and reigning Messiah who would deliver God's people from their enemies and establish forever his righteous kingdom on earth. And when Jesus refused to use his miraculous power for his own benefit or to oppose the Roman oppressors, the disciples wondered if they were right about Jesus' identity. His humility, his meekness, his subservience were in total contrast to their preconceived views of the Messiah. That the Messiah would be ridiculed with impunity, not to mention persecuted and executed, was inconceivable. 
When Jesus spoke of his going away and coming back, Thomas doubtlessly echoed the consternation of all the disciples when he said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And it was similar bewilderment that caused John the Baptist to question his earlier affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew chapter 11, just a few chapters before where we are, this is what it says. When John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus' miracles were clear evidence of his Messiahship But his failure to use those powers to overthrow Rome and establish his earthly kingdom brought Jesus' identity into question, even with the godly spirit-filled John the Baptist. And like John the Baptist, the twelve fluctuated between moments of great faith and of grave doubt. They could proclaim with great conviction, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They could also display remarkable lack of faith and discernment, even after witnessing hundreds of healings and dramatic demonstrations of supernatural power. They were sometimes strong in faith and sometimes weak. Jesus frequently spoke of their little faith. And now at last, the truth of Jesus' divinity and his Messiahship was established in their minds beyond question. They would still experience times of weakness and confusion about what Jesus said and did, but they would no longer doubt who it was who said and did them. He was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. God's own Spirit had now embedded the truth indelibly in their hearts. It took two and a half years for them to come to that place of confession through the struggles and the hatred of the Jewish religious leaders, the the, the mounting fickleness and rejection of the people, and their own confusion about what the Messiah had come to do. But without question, they now knew he was the fulfiller of their hopes, the source of their salvation, the desire of the nations. God revealed it. God made it known. God specially made it known to Peter, this truth about Jesus, And without that revelation, both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, we would not know who Jesus is. We must have God's revelation to know God's truth. We must have God's word to know God's mind. We have to have God's revelation to know his truth. We have to have God's word to know God's mind. Now, just as a a quick and important aside, You know, I've said here, and others that I've quoted have noted, that the apostles were trying to figure it all out, and they were looking for this king to come and conquer conquer Rome, and when Jesus refused to do that, that called into question, is he really the Messiah? And sometimes we ridicule that. I think uh, we are often too hard on the apostles for their understanding that the Messiah was one who would come and conquer. Sometimes when we talk about their confusion, we often do it with a, can you believe how dense and selfish and worldly these guys are? Why are they so focused on earth and a kingdom and a conquering king? Why did they think the Messiah was going to be that? Well, I'll tell you why they thought he was going to be that. (laughs) Because the Old Testament's filled with just such predictions about the coming Messiah. Here's Isaiah chapter 11. The Messiah will raise a banner for the nations. 
and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. So if you grow up in the Old Testament and the Messiah is going to come, you're looking for that to happen. Further, the prophet Zechariah, the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as he fights on, the day, on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. So that's what they're looking forward to. And now Jesus comes along. He's not doing any of that. Not yet. The Old Testament's replete with such predictions and promises. So there was very, very good reason for the apostles to look for a conquering king. But the Old Testament also spoke in some places of the Messiah being a suffering servant. And how can you have both? How can he suffer and even according to Isaiah chapter 53, actually die? According to Daniel chapter 9, be cut off, that is die. How can he die and yet at the same time be this conquering king? How can you have both? And this very same Peter that we find in Matthew chapter 16 wrote two books in your New Testament. And in 1 Peter, he explained the confusion that many had because the Bible promised both things that seemed irreconcilable. Here's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out, now notice this, the time and the circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted two things. The sufferings of the Messiah on the one hand and the glories that would follow. So they've got the Old Testament, they see both of those. How do you put those together? And what are they trying to put together? The time and the circumstance. Both of those are going to happen. But how? The apostles were right about the king and the glories that would follow. And it will still happen. They understandably thought, though, that it would happen in one coming. But when Jesus came, he revealed it will be in two. And his kingdom awaits the second. So we need God's word, friends, to tell us his intentions and what is to come. And Peter is given this gift of revelation about who Jesus is in verse 17. But please, please notice how quickly we can depart from God's revelation to our own ideas and then find ourselves in error. So here's Peter. Peter gets this revelation. He makes this marvelous statement that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of the living God. He says that, and then verse 21 says this. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This will never happen. shall never happen to you. Now notice what Jesus says to Peter at the end of verse 23. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Do you see how quickly Peter's thinking has moved in an erroneous direction? It's an understandable one if you're trying to reason your way to truth. And that's what Peter's trying to do. He's just trying to, he's trying to figure it out. And so he says, no, 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 you can't, you can't die. You've got to be the, 
you got to be the king. You're the Messiah. Can't happen. So he's not relying on God to tell him, as he had to have back in verse 17. But rather now he's back to reasoning in himself in an erroneous direction. So it's understandable if you're trying to reason your way to truth, friends. But reason, hear this, reason is not the source of truth. Reason is the God-given tool to process truth. Reason is not the source of truth. Revelation is the source of truth. And reason is the God-given tool to process his truth. We only know God's truth by revelation. And when we depart from what he has said, we move into error. The church is invincible because of what she believes and because of what Christ does, I say in your outline. Verse 18. And I tell you, Jesus said, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now when the Lord and Peter first met, Jesus had said Simon would be named Cephas. That is Aramaic word, which means rock. Or Peter, which is the Greek word for rock. So sometimes you see Peter variously called Simon, which is his given name, or Cephas, Aramaic for rock, or Peter, his Greek name, both of those meaning rock. And Jesus here recalls that and says Peter is living up to the name that Jesus gave him, rock. Christ's calling and use of Peter in his church is an example of what I say in the outline that he provides the people that she needs, the people that his church needs. Matthew presents Peter as the first disciple to be called back in Matthew chapter 4. And now the first one truly to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And remember, as we've been studying now the book of Acts, so far we've gotten through chapter 4, and it's been Peter who has stood up and spoken on behalf of Christ and his followers, and he's done so courageously and at great cost. It was Peter who spoke the first Christian sermon that resulted in 3,000 people being brought into Christ's newly formed church on the day of Pentecost. Peter and John performed the first Christian miraculous healing in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 4, Peter gets up to preach powerfully yet again. And we're going to see the focus on Peter in the establishment of Christ's church all the way through chapter 12 of the book of Acts. So when Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to build my church on the rock, I take the rock, if I've told you before, to actually be Peter. Now, you don't need to agree with me on that. You may not. And many Protestants are kind of afraid to say Peter's the rock because we know what Roman Catholicism does with that. He's the rock meaning he's the first pope. As I've said before, none of this makes Peter a first pope. It says nothing about a succession of popes after him and all the other things Roman Catholicism has erroneously added to Peter's ministry. But I think there's no need for us to shy away from the truth that Peter's nickname is Rock, given by Jesus, that Jesus uses that play on words in this passage, and in fact, he uses Peter the Rock to establish his church. Christ provides what his church needs, including the personnel. When he saves people, he makes servants of those people. 
When he adds members to his church, he supplies workers for his mission. When he calls people to himself, he calls them into his church. When he gives the gift of salvation, he brings our gifts into his church to be used into his, in his work. He provides what the church needs, especially the people who comprise that church. In the various gifts and abilities, whether it's to lead or to follow, but all to contribute to his mission. But just like with the revelation Peter received, but then he started reasoning on his own, likewise, this bedrock role he played, Peter did, in the establishment of Christ's church, just moments after Jesus commends him, Jesus has to rebuke him in the middle of verse 23. Take a look. Middle of verse 23, Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. All right. You're the rock. Peter, you rock. No. You're a stumbling block to me. Just a few minutes earlier, Peter's the rock. Now he calls him a different kind of, when it says stumbling block, a different kind of rock. The Greek word is scandalon. We get scandal from it. A stumbling block. Just as Satan had offered Jesus kingship without suffering when he tempted Jesus back in Matthew chapter 4, so Peter's now doing the same thing. Adopting current expectations of victorious messianic conquest, Jesus recognizes now the same diabolical, devilish source behind this temptation. For Jesus to acquiesce would be to rebel against the will of his Father. The notion of a suffering Messiah, misunderstood by Peter so that he became a stumbling block to Jesus, itself becomes, after Jesus' resurrection, the Bible says a stumbling block to other Jews as well. It's again a reminder, friends, of how very important it is to have our minds shaped by God's truth rather than our own desires and thinking. The church is invincible because of what Christ does. He provides the people that the church needs, and he provides the assurance his church needs. The end of verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So much could be said of just that one sentence, I will build my church. It's in the future tense. And that is because the church will come into existence in a few weeks from Matthew 16 at Pentecost. Notice whose church it is. It is Jesus' church. It is his people who comprise it. It is his organization that carries out his work. It's not the pastor's church. I'm sometimes amused and a bit troubled when I see the pastor's name on a church sign like the proprietor of a business. I don't know where that tradition came from, but I think it's a bad one. I don't want my name on the sign. I could be gone tomorrow. But the church is not mine. The church is not our other pastors. The church is not the leadership team. The church is Jesus. It doesn't belong to the most prominent families in the congregation. It belongs to Jesus who died for her and he owns her and he loves her as no one else can. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, yes, it's his church, but I will do this. That is, it will happen, come hell or high water. 
Nothing can stop it. And it's good for me, and I trust good for you, to remember on the first Lord's Day of a new year, with a virus still going, with all kinds of upheaval, all kinds of things being thrown at us personally and as God's church, it's good for us to be reminded nothing can stop what Jesus is doing through his church. That's why I titled this message at the top of your outline, Unstoppable. But Satan continues to try, and he will continue, the Bible says, until his bitter end, at the very end of the book of Revelation, in the end of human history. In fact, Satan can use and does use unsanctified thinking in believers to harm, though never halt, his work. After Jesus began to explain the necessity of his coming cross work in verse 21, and Peter tells him it cannot happen, Jesus says in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You see, it's precisely the death of Jesus on the cross that defeats the gates of Hades. The gates are not instruments of warfare. Sometimes people think that. Oh, we're going to go to war with hell, and these gates are a form of that war against, against us. The purpose of the gates is not to conquer, to but rather to protect those who are behind the gates from being conquered, or in the case of a prison, to keep them from escaping. And Hades corresponds to, in the first part of your Bible, written in Hebrew, Sheol. And that is the abode of the dead. It's not eternal hell. And so the gates of death refers to the fact that death has no power to hold God's redeemed people captive. As one commentator has said, its gates are not strong enough to overpower, to have mastery over, and keep imprisoned the church of God, whose Lord has conquered sin and death on their behalf. Because death no longer is master over him, it is no longer master over those who belong to him. And so Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you also will live. Satan now has the power of death, and he continually uses that power in his futile attempt to destroy Christ's church, but Christ's ultimate victory over Satan's power of death is so certain that the writer of Hebrews talks of it as if it's in the past tense. He says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And it's that great truth that Peter spoke of on the day of Pentecost, saying this, God raised him, Christ, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And it's this truth about which Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers who were wavering in their belief in the resurrection. He said, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In light of what Jesus was about to teach concerning his own death and resurrection, and their own willingness to deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him, going down through verse 24, Jesus now assures the twelve. And he assures all believers who would ever come to him, that would include us, that the gates of Hades, the chains of death itself, could never permanently overpower them 
and hold them captive. There is nothing that could keep Christ from going to the cross. And there is nothing that can keep the church formed by that cross from going forward. There is nothing that could keep Christ from going to the cross and nothing that can keep the church formed by that cross from going forward. Yes, individual Christians can fail, as seen by Peter, but never finally. Individual churches can have their place of ministry removed. Churches close. Churches die. Jesus warned, your lampstand in Revelation chapter 3 can be removed if you don't follow me. So individual Christians can fail, but never finally. Individual churches can have their place of ministry removed, but not the church overall. It will move forward. And both of these are true, that it's never final, and never will the church cease to move forward. They're both true, that we individually cannot fail, and the church, the body of Christ, moves forward because God has graciously guaranteed it. Again, this same Peter, writing later, 1 Peter chapter 1. He gives honor to God for the, being the one who keeps his salvation. He said, our salvation is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded. Now, how, notice how we're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The reason you as a believer will not finally fail is not because of you, not because of me. It's because of Jesus, and he's guaranteed it. And he said of Simon, 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 notice using his given name, Satan has asked to sift you, all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Because Jesus is our high priest, because Jesus intercedes for us, Jesus has given this guarantee. The church will move forward as seen at the end of the age. As we said in the title of our series through the book of Revelation, God wins, which means his church wins. The church is invincible then because of what Christ does. He provides the people the church needs. He provides the assurance we need. And lastly, the authority that she needs. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now in that last verse 20, ordering them not yet tell people that I'm the Messiah. There's still all this confusion about who he is. They've just heard this, so he wants to get make sure they're completely clear, and then they will go on their mission. But what about this keys of the kingdom thing? Well, whatever that is, and I'll tell you what I believe it is in a moment, it's pretty heady stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's a way of saying that you, in this case Peter, but then the rest of the apostles, and then, as we'll see, the church itself, hold the key to who gets into the church and eventually the coming kingdom. And you decide who stays in the church and is therefore going to be part of that coming kingdom. Peter was, as we've seen, used by God to be the first key holder. 
But we see that it involved the whole church just two chapters later in chapter 18, Matthew 18. So if you would, just turn a page or two over, Matthew 18. And this is that famous passage where Jesus says, if there's a problem between you and another brother or sister, then you go to them and you seek to reconcile. And if they hear you, then the problem is resolved and it goes no further. But if not, then you take two or three others, two or three others who know the evidence of the offense, the sin that's been committed. If there is no extra evidence of the sin being committed, then it, you leave it there and leave it in the hands of the Lord. And Jesus quotes then in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15 so that every word might be established by two or three witnesses. And then he says, but if they will not hear the witnesses, then you tell it to the church. So now it goes to another level. And in verse 18, Matthew 18, verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you that is now the church, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So who's doing this binding and loosing? Verse 17 says, you tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, now the church has to make a judgment about that. What a sobering thing. What a sobering thing and responsibility for the church. It also, I think, should shake us out of our lethargy regarding the importance and the centrality of the church, don't you think? Like, it seems like the church is really important to God. Dr. Snowberger, whom many of you know, he taught for us for several years in our community institute, just finished another semester a few weeks ago. He wrote an article just a few weeks ago, and it's on the Detroit Baptist Seminary website dbts.edu dbts.edu their blog and i commend it for your reading in its entirety let me quote a portion of what he said about this very issue the responsibility is extraordinary and deeply sobering local churches on earth are to follow the lead of the apostles in policing their membership to align with membership in christ's coming kingdom while we should not assume from this verse that the church is always correct in her assessment of the spiritual state of those she excommunicates. The absence of any exception clause makes the assessment extremely important. Local churches truly are custodians of the kingdom. Wow. That includes all of us, by the way. Lest there be any doubt of this extraordinary responsibility, the scripture writers reiterate this church responsibility at least four times in the letters, three times in the letters of Paul and one in James. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, if you care to jot it down, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, uh, chapters 5 and 6, 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, in Galatians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, and in James chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, James chapter 2. And I encourage you to read that entire article at the DBTS site. Friends, what this means is this. The church has been given the authority, the keys, in both proclamation and purity. We've given the authority to proclaim and so build the church and also to purify and so to maintain the church. And Christ is behind it all as he builds his church. 
And I want you to understand on this first Lord's Day of 2022, Jesus Christ is building his church. And whatever happens, if we get another, you know, it's Omicron. Omicron is the 15th letter in the Greek alphabet, I think. 15th. But, you know, we went from Delta to Omicron pretty quick. Delta's only the fourth. So you had, you know, letters in between. A few of them they didn't use because one of them is actually pronounced new. And so they didn't want people to just think it was new variant. So they just skipped the letter new. So they skipped some of them, but it went from the fourth to the 15th. And are we going to move from Omicron to something else? Of course, I, I don't know. What's going to happen in the political upheaval of this coming election year in November? What's going to happen in the next few years with a presidential election in 2024? What's going to happen internationally? What's going to happen in the financial markets? None of us knows any of that. At the beginning of this new year, with a lot of our people sick and a lot watching by live stream, I want us to remember what Jesus said. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church. Here's your take-home truth. Christ's people and his mission will advance, come what may. Let's bow together. Father, we again thank you for everything and in everything. We thank you for what you've brought about this past year. We thank you for the circumstances of this first Lord's Day. I would not plan them this way, Lord, but I do not have your wisdom. And so I submit to your wisdom. And Lord, help us each collectively then to submit to your wisdom as your church and to simply in the midst of all that you allow to continue to do what you have told us to do, to seek your wisdom in the decisions that you call upon us to make in the weeks and months ahead now as we go into this new year. Lord, help us to have uppermost in our minds what you have revealed about yourself and about your church and about its mission and our place within it. And then, Lord, help us each to give ourselves wholly to it, fully to it. Lord, may you be pleased with what we seek to accomplish. And, Lord, we have our plans. We're going to hold them with an open hand, not with a clenched fist. We hold them before you, and we ask you to fulfill these. But if you have other directions, then, Lord, we will gladly submit. Thank you, Lord, for sustaining us through 21, bringing us into 22. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.